0: I'm excited about tonight's, uh, passage and, and the talk because it's, um, uh, it's, it's one of the most famous, it's probably the most famous passage in the Bible. Um, but there's a, a component of it that I think that we overlook and get skipped over. In fact, I want to start tonight by talking about an Old Testament story that relates to it. Um, that, you may not have ever heard of. I, I grew up in church. I grew up in Christian schools. I was in like Bible school or Sunday school or church six out of seven days a week my entire life growing up. And I don't think we ever talked about this story out of the Book of Numbers. And when you hear it, you'll probably understand why, because it's a weird story. It's hard to know like what, what's a good you know flannel board lesson for the kids to pull off of this this story. But um, I think it's so interesting. And I think it uh, to me uh, once I got to know this story, it casts a different light on even the most famous of verses that I, we all grew up. One, one of the first ones that I all that I learned, you know, in the sword drills and the first one that I learned when I you know, had memory verse stuff in Sunday school, that kind of thing. Uh, and I just had ne- and it just casts a new light on it. So I want to start in this weird story in numbers. And, and I think uh, Todd, I forgot to put this on a slide, so y'all are going to have to. Um, just believe me that I'm not making this up. Out of the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 21, verses 5 through 9, or there may be Bibles uh, in the pews. Uh, we probably need to do better at just starting to bring our Bibles again. That's kind of an old-school thing we've just stopped doing. Pull out your phone with the Bible on it, whatever you, whatever you want. I'll, I'll trust that you're not texting. Uh, it says this, book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 5 through 9, and we're, we're entering into the story of uh, Israel uh, being a bit combative with God after their rescue from Egypt. It says this, 21 verse 5 says, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people. (laughs) We hate your food. Here's some poisonous serpents. Uh, So the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze, put it on a pole, and whenever the serpent bit someone that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. Have a great week. This is the word of the Lord. So you have this, you have this really strange story, right? They have, uh, they are, uh, they're complaining to Moses and they're complaining to God. Why did you rescue us from Egypt? Of course, the answer is because that's what you wanted and that's what you begged for and God listened to your cries for help, right? Why did you rescue us from there? You brought us out to the wilderness to die. Uh, there is no food uh, or drink. Followed by, we detest this food. So there is food. There's just not food we like. We, would, we want something different. This man is getting a little bit old, right? And so they act out, and, um, and you have this situation where the Old Testament is having this kind of tantrum that they have with God. If you have little children in the house or at one point had little children at the house, you know how this works, right? It doesn't matter what you do. At some point, you're the worst human being in the world, even though you've been nice all day. We, we got up and got donuts, and then we went down to the coast and went to you know, the the new aquarium. And then we got pizza afterwards, and we let you watch a movie in the car on the way home. And when we get back and we get to the house and we're going to eat dinner, uh, can we watch a movie while we eat dinner? No, I think we've watched enough. Why does everyone hate me? Why are you the worst parent in the world? Why doesn't anyone love me? Right? And you, as a parent, want to go. What is wrong with you? And that's when you start the stories of being old. And when I was a kid, you had to wait a whole week for the cartoon to come back on TV, and if you missed it, you missed it. And you know, da da da. And Israel uh, very much has this child-parent relationship with God. God heard the cries of an oppressed people who for generations were enslaved. They were slaves. They had no identity of their own that was not dictated to them. They had, no, uh, they had no way of determining anything for themselves. They worked, and all they did was work, and all they meant to those who oppressed them was the work that they produced. They cried out to God. God chose this small, strange group of people that had no power and no influence and said, these are my people. I will rescue you. And there were plagues, and there were locusts, and the firstborn sons in Egypt died. and The water opened up, and the people walked through it, and then the water swallowed their enemies behind them. And then there's a cloud of fire in the sky, and food shows up every morning that you don't have to work for. And, and you practice the Sabbath, and you have all these things. And why did you bring us out here to kill us? Is that Because that makes a lot of sense. Yes, I did all this. I did all of that to bring you out here and kill you. That was the plan all along. right? It doesn't, it doesn't even make sense. It defies logic. But um, this is the way people are. right? As much as we want to make fun of the Israelites, you and I do the same thing, and sometimes for um, much, uh, much less understandable reasons even than the Israelites did. So here they are, delivered from Egypt, but complaining that God must have saved them to kill them. And so God sends poisonous snakes among them. I'm not going to try and help you understand why God did that. I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to try and make sense of it. I don't understand it. Seems like an extreme move on my part. Probably not what I would do with my kids. That's fine. He sends poisonous snakes out among them, um, as one does when they're unfairly accused. We've all done it, right? So Moses sends out, uh, Moses is there with the people seeing what's happened Moses goes to God on behalf of the people who suddenly love God once the poisonous snakes show up. Uh, and he goes to God on behalf of the snake bit public and God pro- provides a cure for what is killing them. Does God seal the mouths of the snake shut like we assume God could, right? God already took their legs in, in Genesis, right? Does he seal their mouths shut? No. Does God send hordes of ferrets into the camp to eat the snakes? It's ferrets that eat snakes, right? Right? Mongoose? Ferrets. Mongoose. Mongoose. Is that plural for mongooses? Mongai. Did he send mongai into the, into the camps to kill all the snakes? No, he did not send the mongai into the camps. No, God tells them to make a graven image of a serpent and set it up on a pole. This is a weird thing for God to tell the people of God. Mind you, there's not a great history with making golden animal statues before God and Moses for the people of Israel. This is not something that is, you know, usually uh, uh, smiled upon. But make this bronze snake, set it up high. When someone is bit and poisoned by the snake, they can look at the bronze snake that's lifted up uh, and see what poisoned them in the first place, and they will live, right? I will heal you by having you gaze upon this glowing example of what poisoned you in the first place. I will heal you by having you gaze upon this glowing example of what poisoned you in the first place. That is a weird story. Anyone who tells me that they don't read the Bible because the Bible is boring, I always think you, I, there may be a lot of good reasons not to read the Bible. That's fine if you don't want to, but it is not boring. There is some weird stuff in here. It is, it is, it is weird. It is, you know, Pink Floyd album video weird sometimes. There's some crazy stuff happening here, Right? And this is a strange story, and it doesn't sound like a story that would find its way into too many sermons, because again, what do we do with that? This seems like one of those little stories we just forget about, leave in the past, except it finds its way prominently into the most famous teaching that Jesus ever gave. Right? In the Gospel of John in the New Testament, chapter 3, Jesus welcomes the teacher Nicodemus for a secret late-night counseling session. Nicodemus wants to learn from Jesus, but he doesn't want to do it in public because it's still kind of controversial to follow Jesus. And so he goes to him in private to ask him questions. While Nicodemus is usually the one answering questions, he here finds himself asking them of the rabbi Jesus. And Jesus begins to tell him all kinds of stuff. And Nicodemus takes things too literally when he should take it symbolically, and it gets a little bit messy, but... You know, this is where we get the term born again from. Jesus tells him, you want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. And, and, uh, and that term had not been used ad nauseum yet, so uh, Nicodemus is puzzled, and he takes Jesus very literally, and he says, how exactly am I supposed to be born again? That seems impossible for me and highly uncomfortable for my mother. What do we do here? I don't understand. And Jesus goes on to try and explain the deeper meaning of what he is trying to teach Nicodemus. And in the midst of that exchange, We find the following, and this, I think, actually is on a slide. Uh, Chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, verses 14 through 21, says this. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man be lifted up. So he starts this section by referencing this crazy story in Numbers and comparing himself to that bronze serpent. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be seen clearly that their deeds have been done in God. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. We could spend several weeks on the different lines of this teaching out of John 3. But I want to consider that little part uh, that we start with. I want to consider Jesus comparing himself to the serpent on a stick. The most famous passage in Scripture is set within the context of this weird story in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Why? Now, there's some immediate kind of physical similarities that we can deduce since we know the end of the story. We know what Nicodemus does not. We know how the Gospels turn out. We know what happens to Jesus. We know the end of that story, right? There is a serpent who is lifted up on a pole in front of everyone for their healing, and we again know what Nicodemus does not. We know that one day Jesus will essentially be lifted up on a pole for everyone to see, and he will be in front of everyone, and in the strange, backwards, upside-down way of God's kingdom, him taking the brunt of all the world's violence, will be the source of our healing. The Son of Man, lifted up on the cross, will demonstrate what life eternal looks like. This Son on the pole will show a God who loves so deeply that he gives his only Son. He doesn't give his Son to condemn the world, which is crucifying him, but to save the world, to cast light even into the darkest corners, right? This Son, lifted on this cross, will judge this world by bringing light into it. I I love that little section. I was never taught that judgment was just the casting of light, even though it's written very explicitly here, and I think that'll change the way you think about God's judgment um, if you allow it to. The Son of Man is lifted on the cross to judge the world by bringing light into it, because this is what God's judgment always looks like. True light is judgmental. If you've got bad lighting in your bathroom and you see yourself in the morning in it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It allows us to see ourselves truly, which can be a deeply disturbing thing. To be honest, this whole way, this, this idea of comparing Jesus to the serpent and the, on the stick in the wilderness and all of these things, it's not the way I was taught to think about the Son of God on that cross. We were taught to think about the cross, to think about the Son of God on that cross as a reminder, and you may not have had this tradition, this tradition I grew up in, as a reminder of God's wrath. As a reminder of God's wrath that was intended for me. That was my cross, right? The punishment of a just God who is forced by nature to meet This judgment out upon someone and Jesus stepped in the way and took it. And so the cross was a reminder of God's punishment. Now certainly, there are scriptures in our Bible that play with this metaphor. You can chapter and verse that idea. Now it's one of many metaphors that are used. Uh, Unfortunately, in my childhood church, We took that metaphor and made it literal, which is always the best way to murder a metaphor. It's not literal by definition, and you kill it when you try to make it that way. And we talked about it to the exclusion of every other metaphor uh, that casts light upon the mystery of what was happening on the cross and what it is that we celebrate as Christians, right? But that's a whole other discussion. I'm stuck on what all, how all this relates to that bronze snake on that pole in the wilderness in Numbers. And what does that tell us about maybe the role the cross plays for us? It is strange for God to tell the Israelites that their healing is found in gazing upon that which poisons them. That somehow their salvation was found by really seeing what was eating them from the inside out. If they really saw what poisoned them, then they could live. But I would submit to you, at least in part, isn't that a really important part of what the cross is doing as well? After all, the cross doesn't represent God's justice. It represents humanity's justice. It represents the way the world thought things should work. The cross is our best attempt at setting the world right. The cross was the way that we tried to do justice in this world, the way we try to right wrongs. It's a weapon of our kingdoms, not God's. And with Jesus on the cross, we are looking at what happens at the end of the day when our justice comes to play. Where does it get us? What kind of justice do we end up with? The cross shows us that what we get uh, with our justice is the God of innocence convicted. What we get is love murdered. What we get is the creator seemingly destroyed. It is bad news. It was the most catastrophic failing of the principles that we organize our entire society around. It is what is killing us. The Son of Man lifted up, Jesus on the cross clearly shows us our own poison. It shows us our own violence. It shows us our own sickness. It makes manifest the sickness in our own bloodstreams. It laid bare the rot of our own violence, our own sense of redemptive violence, which has never proven to actually be true, our own twisted sense of what we called justice. And the more closely we look at it, the more closely we see it for what it is, the better chance we have of outliving it. Gaze upon the evidence of what this world's version of power what this world's version of justice, what this world's version of righteousness gets us. Look at it, see it for what it is, and be healed. I would argue that Jesus on the cross exposes our violence, not God's. Our justice, not God's our kingdoms, not God's, our way of being, which is, by nature, deadly. And I don't think we should forget this during this long Lenten journey that we are in the middle of right now. And I, and I say long because, like I said last week, I feel like Lent never stopped last year and it's just kept going. It's been a year-long Lent. And so as we go through this Lenten journey, as we head towards the depths of of Good Friday, and the heights of Easter morning, we would do well to remember this serpent on the pole. We would do well to remember what this cross says to us, to fix our eyes on the sun that has been lifted up, to fix our eyes on the Son of God on that cross, showing us our darkness, showing us our poison. And then, and only then, can we hope to escape the condemnation that already infects us. Then we can be healed. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you have a different kingdom, a different way of organizing people, a different way of operating amongst each other, a different way of doing Uh, neighborliness and justice and love and grace and charity. God, as we gaze upon the cross, as we gaze upon the horror of an innocent God crucified, may it not lead us to reflect upon your violence, but on our own. May we see the fault lines in our own sense of justice. And our own ideas of how to set things right. May we see them for the poison that they are. May we look at them. May we look at the manifestation of our poison so that we might be healed from it. So that we might go into this world and build your kind of kingdom with your kind of grace and your kind of unconditional love, your kind of non-resistance and non-violence, your upside-down, backwards way of living in this world as broken as it is. God, we do love you. We are here because we love you, and we ask all things in your name. Amen.